We are now moving point two of replacement, that physical Israel gets replaced by spiritual Israel in the plan of God. This is the most contentious part of this presentation. Dispensationalists in particular find this very offensive, but I think it's biblical. Okay, so I'll make my case, you fire away, and we'll see where we go. Turn to Matthew 21 to sort of get us started. Parable of the tenants. And of course, the parables, unless Jesus interprets them, which he only does twice, parable of the sower, parable of the weeds, the details are just a good story. Just a good story. And then there's a punchline. Something about the kingdom. But the details, you're not allowed to read, read into it. They're not symbolic unless Jesus interprets them. And of course, he doesn't do that except two. So let, let's read the parable of the tenants. This is beginning at verse 33 of Matthew 21. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved on to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to, to the tenants to collect his fruit. Now, everybody can relate to this story, culturally. The tenant seized his servants. They beat, him, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Quote, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected? Of course, that's him, has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, this is the punchline. I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Israel, given to a people who will produce its fruit. They're actually going to be believers. Anyone who falls on this stone, Jesus, will be broken in pieces, and anyone in whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them, not just this parable. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. He's going to replace it to a people who will produce its fruit, who actually have a new heart. Unlike Israel, which doesn't have a new heart. Remember, the remnant, it's like they don't exist. We know they do exist, but in the argument, they don't exist. Yes. Okay, well then I'll just make my case that he's now going to deal with all the individuals in it. So it's same thing, that they're going to be replaced by a people. That's really what's going to happen. So now with that in mind... Flip over to Romans chapter 2, the last two verses of Romans 2. The Apostle Paul, of course, this section is 
on why both Jews and Gentiles need a Savior. They're both lost. The Apostle Paul, in verses 28 and 29, is is changing the definition of the people of God. Changing the definition. He says, a person is not a Jew. Now, I think Jew means people of God. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. Well, that's all that was required of Israel. You're just born into an Israelite family. If you were a male on the eighth day, you were circumcised. To die, you are the people of Israel. That's it. That's it. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No. A person is a Jew, people of God, who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit. That's the new heart. You know, put my law in your heart. Not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. This change of definition virtually eliminates all of physical Israel. And we, if you're like me, a lot of times when I was reading this, I just slide right by this. This is earth shattering because belief is not a requirement to getting the sign, circumcision. It's not a requirement. You just have to be born into it. So with that in mind, just the, these are sort of preliminary things. Turn to Colossians 2. 11 and 12. The Apostle Paul here in Colossians 2 is comparing and contrasting circumcision and water baptism. Old covenant, new covenant. The sign of the people of God. Old covenant, physical circumcision. New covenant, water baptism. Okay? So he says, in him, in Christ, you were also talking to believers. You were also circumcised. So we're all circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. New heart. You know, you're a new person in Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. What's he saying? He's saying that we give water baptism to those who give evidence of being circumcised in their heart. Belief. New heart. So then the relationship of physical circumcision in the old covenant era and water baptism in the new covenant era as the sign of the people of God is picture fulfillment. Picture. Circumcision is just the picture of the people of God. Because belief is not a requirement. But in the New Covenant era, yes, it is. We only give water baptisms to those who give evidence of repentance and faith. That's what we do. And so that's the relationship. Picture fulfillment. I mean, R.C. Sproul, who was a wonderful guy. Oh, by the way, this is, I warn you, it's kind of cheap humor. Uh, I get asked. All right, you're teaching this New Covenant theology stuff. What main men in church history believe in New Covenant theology? And so I start. Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, R.C. Sproul. He said, well, well, they're all dead. You're right. They're with the Lord, so now they know the truth. (laughs) Of course, it's obvious. Nah, it is cheap, but it's the best I can do. Okay, question about that here. Okay, flip over. It's the last of our preliminary things to Matthew 13. And here in verse 10, Matthew 13, Jesus is asked by his disciples, why do you speak to the people in parables? 
when I became a believer, it was the time of the Jesus movement, 1970. And there was lots of emotion, a lot of people becoming believers also. And I, I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ at Penn State. And, of course, they would have speakers come in. And, and of course, one of the speakers will talk about, you know, you want to make your life effective. You want to become a master teacher. Okay. And Jesus, who is the master teacher, how did he teach? And the answer is he taught through parables. Okay. So if I'm going to be a master teacher, I want to speak through parables. Well, I mean, that sounds kind of okay, but it's actually the term we give to it is hokey. It's not, not very good. So he says, he replied, this is Jesus' answer, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, that's the disciples, but not to them, that's the Israelite audience. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Then he's going to quote Isaiah 6. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But I'm not going to allow it. He speaks in parables to hide the message of the gospel from the Israelites, because it is not his plan to save them. Now, we know there's a remnant that are going to believe, got that, but this is why Israel is a temporary, unbelieving picture of the people of God. And Jesus couched it. You even get to the point, remember after the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is up in northern Galilee, and he begins that final trek all the way to the cross to die. That's the track. Now, during that time, he begins to become very explicit what's going to happen to him. I've got to suffer and die and rise again. Now, they, they, they don't catch it. They don't connect the dots. But he's very clear about what's going to happen. He does not talk to them about the theology of the cross. That never comes out. That never comes out. Just the facts. The theology doesn't come out until after Pentecost because that's the time for believing. That's the time of the Spirit. That's why we have the Great Commission. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses to Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts. That's the idea. Picture, fulfillment. And that's why Israel gets replaced. That's why it gets replaced with the people that actually believe and are transformed from the inside out. They have forgiveness of sins and they have a new heart. That's the idea. What about the fact that Jesus said... Well, yeah, but no, the disciples, yes, they were Jews, but they they were a small subset of Israelites. But that's the remnant. I mean, there's always the remnant. Well, but no no one's disputing that. You're talking to the choir. We all believe that. But the language is that there's none. Language is none. 
We'll, that's 11. We're not there yet. Right. We are going to go there. But you're good. You're tracking. You're just a step ahead. You're a step ahead, which is great. Yes. So it's sort of like how we speak when we mean to say, like, oh, man, there's, no, there's nobody around here who I like. Like, right. Something like that. But there's like a few people. Right. Or uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh when the Steelers won the first Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Okay. Headlines in the paper. All Pittsburgh shows up at the airport to welcome the Steelers with their Super Bowl win. I was at home. <laughs> okay. But we, the, the headline is not false. You're right. It's a great number of people showed up. That's what it means. So we don't think they're telling a lie. So it's the inverse of that. Right. Yeah, it is hyperbole. Of course it is hyperbole. Turn to Galatians chapter 4, the allegory of Hagar and Sarah, verses 21 to 31. Now, this is built upon an understanding, which I know we all have now, is that the old covenant is a works covenant. Okay. So let's walk it through. Tell me, you who want to be under the law. Now, this is relevant to our last session when we deal about law. Because the Mosaic law is tied to a works covenant. This is the argument in Galatians. If you're going to bring the Mosaic law in, which they want to do. Remember, they're, in Galatians, they're, these guys from Jerusalem show up with a new version of the gospel. The cross plus obey the Mosaic law. Get circumcised. And Paul's argument is, if you're bringing the Mosaic law into t- this side of Pentecost then you're bringing the old covenant in. It's a works covenant. And if you do that, he uses the phrase, depending on your translation, you have fallen from grace. You're going to go to hell. Because now you're opting for salvation by works. Because the Mosaic law is tied. The version of God's law is tied to a works covenant during the old covenant era. It's tied to it. And so when we get the law, then law has to be radically changed. Has to be. Has to be replaced. So he, so he says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? And he's talking about the old covenant demands perfect obedience. You want to go that route? You know, you're in deep trouble. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, that's Hagar, with Ishmael, the other by the free woman, Sarah, with Isaac. His son by the slave woman, Ishmael, his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. Yeah, she just, Sarah said, have a child through my servant. But his son by the free woman, Isaac, was born as a result of a divine promise, Genesis 15. Then he says, these things are being taken figuratively, or depending on your translation, allegory. The women represent two covenants. Once again, we see that in the teaching passages of the New Covenant era, that all they're concerned about is Old and New Covenant. That's really what what they're concerned, because that's the game of salvation. Picture, fulfillment. One covenant is from Mount Sinai, the Old Covenant, and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. If it's a works covenant, it can only produce unbelievers. That's the whole point. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Yeah, that's the point. 
Because the Old Covenant... Now, once again, we know there's a remnant of believers in there because they're saved on the basis of the cross to come, like David. But that doesn't change the fact that the Old Covenant is worse, is a works. Only it produces Israel, which are unbelieving. But the Jerusalem that is above, the heavenly Jerusalem, that's the New Covenant, Jesus purchases a people from every tribe, nation, tongue, that Sarah represents that. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. We're the result of that. That's the new covenant, the cross. Now it says this, for it is written, this is interesting, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, I think this is obvious, so we just don't even need a comment. This is so clear. No, it's Isaiah 54.1. What is that in context? It's a regathering of Israel back into the land prophecy. Israel has become like a barren woman. No children. Point of shame in the Old Covenant. Israel's become that way. They're, okay, you know, Jeremiah, God divorces Israel. That's the language. But... When the cross takes place and Pentecost begins, now we're in the era of belief, the era of the Spirit, the New Covenant era, because now we have the Great Commission, that there is going to be a spiritual Israel that is like a woman who can never have children, who all of a sudden has a bucket load. The old woman in the shoe had so many children, she didn't know what to do. That's what Israel is going to become. But it's being quoted as referring to the new covenant era. Now, it's referring to a spiritual Israel. This is one of the nine places that talk about the fulfillment of the, re- of the regathering pr- prophecy of Israel back into the land at the end, causing them to believe. Only here is quoted by the Apostle Paul under the control of the Holy Spirit as referring to the church this is a spiritual Israel, mostly Gentile, remnant of Jew. Verse 28. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. That's Isaac. Well, that's historically true. It is the same now. That is, the Jews are persecuting the Christians. Absolutely true. What is it in uh, the church of Smyrna? Or, or per, the uh, Jews are called the synagogue of Satan. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. Throw the old bag under, under, the, you know, under the bus. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. We're the result of the cross, the new covenant. Those are believers. The old covenant, nah. Only can produce unbelievers, children who are in slavery. So that's built on the understanding that the old covenant is a works or legal covenant. Okay, so now let's turn to the most controversial portion, which is Romans 9, 10, and 11. And I purposely say we'll start in Romans 9 because it's one uninterrupted argument. And I think you need to start in 9 
so that because lots of questions get answered before you get to 11. Okay, in verses 1 through 5, uh, Paul is talking about, well, primarily verses 3, 4, 5. He's talking about the benefits Israel experienced. So we would use it in American political language, Israel under the old covenant had a most favored state status with God. The mistake you make is thinking that salvation is part of that, and it's not. Because it says, verse 3, for I my, that I myself were cur- I, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, that is to the picture of sonship. Not real. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Okay, so they did have that. That's why, remember, the categories in the old covenant era are Israel and the Gentiles. Believer, unbeliever is not a category. Verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. Well, why? Because the Jews don't, don't embrace Jesus as Messiah. They don't. Now, it's interesting. You say, well, this is the Apostle Paul. Haven't you, don't you remember the history of the day of Pentecost? 3,000 saved in that early church? Yeah, but that historically is just a blip. Once things, it's like the grand opening of a grocery store. You have a grand opening of a big grocery store. They give away hot dogs, ice cream, balloons, popcorn. In one four-wheeler. Yeah, in one four-wheeler. But that only lasts for a couple weeks at best. And then it's business as usual. That's it. No more hot dogs, no more ice cream. You just go to the grocery store. Well, that's how the Apostle Paul viewed Pentecost. Because you say, well, he says it's not as though God's word had failed. Well, he's, and he's referring to the Jews' rejection of Jesus. He says, well, haven't you read Acts chapter 1, chapter 2? No, that's, he says, once things settle down, the Jews reject. And we see that in the book of Acts. Apostle Paul's always being run out of town by the Jews. Okay, and then he says, for not all who are descended from Israel are or Israel. That is, you make a mistake if you equate physical Israel with spiritual Israel. That's not how it works. But the entire New Testament church up until, you know, Cornelius. And uh, absolutely true. That, so that, that, I mean, yes, certain Jews rejected Jesus, but certain Jews did not. But take it up with Paul. Well, but no, that, that's my point. That's my point. That's, what, that's why I acknowledge that. You have that historically, but the Apostle Paul clearly understood that. Clearly understood that, but he still said, it's not as though God's word had failed. Because he, in his argument, it looks like God's word had failed because the people who are called the people of God, the Israelites, they don't buy Jesus. They don't buy it. That's well, but but that's his argument. And all the ones that but, all the Christians but but I agree with that. But that but only in the beginning, 
And for 2,000 years, that has not been true. Only in the beginning. It was just the grand opening, the grocery store. And then shortly thereafter, the answer is no, it's not. Yes? When they, those that did buy, I don't see that they bought Well, that's true, because the gospel message is that's the Messiah. But, um, but the point is, all we're doing is reading the text is that Paul clearly is aware of what happened at the beginning of the New Covenant era there in Jerusalem. Clearly he's aware of that. But he still says, it is, it's not as though God's word had failed. So the point is that that initial response of Israelites to the gospel message, which is true, was purely temporary, And when you step back and you get the big picture, you say Israel has rejected the Messiah. That's what you say. That's my point. So let's move on. Then he says this, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Israel, the Israelites are the physical descendants of Abraham. God promised to give Abraham descendants. We, We see that in Genesis 15. It's not a problem. Israel's the physical descendants. You make a mistake if you equate belief with the physical fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Now that's where, if all we had was the Old Testament, would we understand this? No, we wouldn't. Because, he says, on the contrary, it is through Isaiah, Isaac excuse me, that your offspring will be reckoned. In, in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, which is Israel. But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And that's why we get into the section on election. God, because he's answering the question, How do you become a spiritual Israelite? The answer is God has to choose you. That's why we get into it. And that's why sometimes well-intentioned, we want to talk about election, which is all true. God chooses those who are going to heaven. That's true. But we forget about this is part of another argument. Explaining how do you become a spiritual Israelite? God has to choose you. That's the point. Now, the next question is going to be, how many Israelites is God going to choose? That's the next question. So we're going to jump from 9 to 10, through 10, because 10 is just, actually, let's read uh, 9.30 through 10.4. 9.30 through 10.4. Right, you're exactly right. Exactly right. But that's, but that's virtually all Jews. Once again, we're back to the argument. It's virtually all Gentiles as well. Well, that, that's not the argument. It's not the argument. No, it's not the argument. It's not the, no, he's talking to Jews. He's explaining to them, guys, it looks like God's plan has failed because the Jews, who are the people of God, historically, they reject Jesus. He says, you make a mistake. You're thinking that physical Israel is spiritual Israel doesn't work that way. Well, how does it work? Well, God has to choose you to be a spiritual Israelite. Ah, so that's, how, that's as far as chapter 9 takes us. And then pick up 930. 
What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they didn't have a prayer, the Gentiles, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness, they were, they were thinking that the old covenant was actually a way, law-keeping, which it's not, have not attained the, their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, of course, that's Jesus, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. This is the only prayer in the New Testament for praying for someone's salvation, by the way. This is it. This is the only prayer in the, in the New Testament for somebody else's salvation. Paul's for, Paul is praying for Israel because those are his people. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. God's standard is perfection. And you, 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 need a, you need a clean record to be accepted by God. You can either get that by perfect law-keeping, which is impossible unless you were Jesus, or have your sins paid for on a cross, which you get a clean record. That's why in Hebrews 10, 14, when it talks about forgiveness of sins, the language it uses is, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The perfect forever corresponds in verses 15 to 18 there, forgiveness of sins. So if you get your sins forgiven, paid for by the cross, you get a status with God as though you've obeyed perfectly. Because your record is clean. And if your record is clean, by definition, you are righteous. And if you are righteous, he accepts you. He cannot accept anybody who's not perfect. And that's why the cross is the only way. Okay, so here, once again, you read 9.30 through 10.4. There, there's no believers in Israel. There's none. There is an asterisk. We know there is a remnant, but they, they don't count. They don't count. So then that takes you to 11, because the rest is not relevant to our discussion. Here is the rhetorical question. Very important. Paul says, I ask then, did God reject his people? You would think that he's, he just wiped his hands with Israel. Their role was the picture the picture has come to an end. The cross has taken place. We're now Pentecost. We're into the new covenant era. This is a time for believing. The church is mostly Gentiles, a little bit of Jews. We're off and running. Paul says, now there's, there's probably a, more of a modern translation when Paul says, what am I, chopped liver? I'm a Jew. I'm a believer. So God hasn't completely rejected Jews. He goes, by no means, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. That is, that portion of physical Israel that God chose to save, he has not rejected. Paul is one of those. 
That's his argument. Don't you know what, what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? Now we're back to the prophets of Baal. How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your... You have to say this with like a whine. Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I'm the only one left. My daughter plays the viola. She's a very good player. And uh, you have to kind of play that. It's much easier on the, on the ear if you have a daughter learning that than learning the violin. Learning the violin is very difficult on, on the rest of the household. Until they're good, because the screeching will kill you. Viola is a lower tone, and it's just more pleasing to the. So, if you're going to recommend that to a, one of your grandkids, go for the viola. Go for the viola. He says, I, "Yeah, it is. I'm the only one left, and they are trying to kill me." What was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself seven thousand who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So we got that. Elijah was the only one left. So too, now we're back to the argument. So too, at the present time, New Covenant era, Pentecost, Second Coming, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now we're back to the remnant. God is, God is done with Israel nationally because all the national promises are tied to the old covenant. If that covenant comes to an end, national promises come to an end. We're going to talk about that when we get into the land next. After lunch. But he says, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So he's answered the question, how many of the Israelites does God choose? A remnant. That's better than none, because you would expect them to be none. He goes, no, 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 not quite. He's going to save some. Not a big amount. And it's like today, how many Jews, forget how how you determine what is a Jew, which is a real interesting thing, but how many Jews do you know are believers? I mean, Gentiles, you're a bucket load. But Jews, you think in terms of one hand, and you begin to think, well, I know Ellis, I know this guy, I know this guy. You, You... say the same thing about Gentiles. I know you majority of the world, 10 billion people are majority Gentiles. Oh, absolutely. That's true, but you missed the argument. Missed the argument. When we talk about there is a remnant of Jews in the spiritual Israel, but if we talk about believers to the world, we are a remnant of the world. Which is absolutely true. Remember Matthew 7, narrow is the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. You know, there's no crowd control, crowd control problems on the way to heaven. There is not a problem. You know, once you get rid of all the false professions in American evangelical churches, the real, the real folks, there's not a lot. But every last one of them loves the Lord. Scripture is their authority. They do bear fruit, but there's not a lot. When do we get to talk about a lot? We're, we're just right now. We're moving in. So we're going to walk through it. We're going to walk through it. Okay. I think it's interesting. I don't know. If you go to Israel today, the you know, amount of believers, just a, there's just a small remnant of believers within physical Israel today. Small remnant. Okay. So he says this. So we'll begin verse 7. Because this is now more the controversial portion. What then? 
What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. That is acceptance with God. They didn't obtain it because they they tried to get it through works, law-keeping. The elect among them did. That's true because God gave them the gift of faith and they believed. But the others were hardened. Ah, you know, this is where, that's exactly the language. God, his plan sounds like playing hardball with them, but it's true. God is not his plan that they believe predestined them to hell, but remember, God's plan is always, if you end up in hell, you're, you are blamed. You are blamed. The fact that it is God predestined you to hell is irrelevant in the court of heaven. You are blamed for your unbelief. There's no way around it. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. Well, that's Isaiah, that's Isaiah chapter 6, the prophecy regarding that they will never believe. David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. That is Israel. Now, verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? This is the same question with a little different emphasis as verse 1. Same question. He's already answered the question, by the way. He's already answered the question. He goes, not at all, because we've we've already read verse 5. There's a remnant chosen by grace. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. That's right. They rejected the apostle Paul in the synagogue. He goes to the Gentiles, and we're the benefits of that. That's wonderful. But if their transgression means riches for the world, which it does, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, which it does, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? This is the first controversial point. Depending on your translation, it'll say fullness, full number, full inclusion. You have a, those are the options. But he's already answered what will that fullness is, the full number of the elect. He's already explained, well, how much is that? A remnant chosen by grace. He's already answered the question. He's now looking at that same question from another point of view. Same question. I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the... Yes. He's not saying a great number will come to faith. A great high percentage of Jews will be elect. Right. No, because I think if you follow the argument, the last thing you would think of is a great number of Jews. If you start from nine, the last thing you would think of is that. You're just marveling that he's saving some. Because the time of the Israelite is over. Their role was to function as the unbelieving picture of the people of God. Okay, so... Paul says, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. How many? A remnant. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, yes, it did, because the gospel goes out to the world, every tribe, nation, and tongue, because that's where God has his elect. What will their acceptance be for life from the dead? Which is true. They have been, the old covenant, they're dead. But some are going to come to life. If part of the dough offered is first fruits, and this is an interesting couple of verses. 
Well, now that's just true. If part of the dough offered is, is holy, then the whole batch is holy. Well, that's just true. That's just an illustration. Then he goes, if the root is holy, so are the branches. That is relevant to our argument. What's the root? It's going back to Abraham. Back to Abraham, because Abraham's the father of all those who believe. Okay, so we know, we've, been already been to- we've already been told that the physical descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, are not the real people of God. The spiritual descendants are. So with that in mind, stop for a second. Keep your finger here. Go to Galatians 3. Go, go to verse 15. We'll look at two places. We'll come back to Galatians when we talk about law. Verse 15, he says, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, Abraham and covenant. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. You go, I didn't read that in Genesis 15. It just talks about Isaac. And through Isaac, you have a bunch of relatives. Well, Isaac is a picture of Christ. We're not being, you know, we're, we're not being fanciful. God is interpreting his own word. So really, the Abrahamic covenant, even though the old covenant is a fulfillment of it in picture form, it's really all about the cross, the new covenant, the work of Jesus. And that's eternal. That's eternal. You should point out every aspect of the old covenant is said to be everlasting. Every aspect. But it's only everlasting in its new covenant fulfillment. The priesthood is said to be everlasting. The law is said to be everlasting. Everything. The land is said to be everlasting. None of it is everlasting, literally. But it is in its new covenant fulfillment, which is everlasting. So here... And if you turn, excuse me, if you go to the very last verse of Galatians 3, 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You're what the promise to Abraham was, promise to Abraham was really all about. All those are going to be saved through the work of Jesus on the cross, the new covenant. That's what it's all about. Now, it was in picture form. Did many people catch it? No. It was not God's plan to save many until Pentecost kicks in, the time for believing, the time of the Spirit. And we are the most privileged of all folks, for we live in the time of fulfillment. Well, actually, if you were a believer back then, you had it also. We can, we can talk about that. And that's a good discussion, but Steve reminded me in his gentle way, of course, that let's not get sidetracked. So that would be a sidetrack. I'm tempted, but I hear his voice in my ear. You know, guilt, you know, grace only takes you so far. Guilt goes the rest of the way. It's the way it works. But he was right. Okay, so from the point of view of the teaching passages of the New Covenant era, the Abraham is all about the New Covenant. Well, it's true, but it just depends what part of Scripture you're referring to the Abrahamic Covenant from. You know, the picture... Or the fulfillment. Okay, so that brings us questions so far. Yeah. Yes. So, verse one. Paul. Mm-hmm. True. Yep. Well, they, how can they be God's people? In picture form. 
Well, that's not, he's not talking picture. He's well, saying, no, because he's, because he assumes you, you have read chapter 2, verses 27 28. Gently point you back to 9.30 through 10.4, where he gives the evaluation of the people of God as only a picture of the people of God, not the real people of God, and that's why we get into 11.5. Well, then how many of this picture of the people of God is he going to save? A remnant chosen by grace at the present time. At the very end of the argument that he's starting with, did he reject at the very end? Yeah, because all the rest. But when he says, what the pe- verse 7, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. Okay, so when he says in verse 16, if the root is holy, so are the branches. That is, if you as a Jew were part of of Abraham's spiritual children, which is a remnant would be, then, then, you know, so there's always going to be in Abraham's line, there's always going to be uh, the real people of God. The bulk, most of, most of them are physical. The physical Israelites, no, they're not. No, they're not. But some are. There is, it, back to the remnant thing again, some are. Okay, that's the idea. Can I ask a question? Yes. That's exactly the case. We're only, God is being, God is showing uh, his choice at each step. He doesn't choose Ishmael, he chooses Isaac. He doesn't choose Isaac, I mean uh, Esau, he chooses Jacob. He doesn't choose the uh, children through Keturah, doesn't do that. And this promise goes, and out of this is going to come Israel, eventually, once they get populated and then Exodus, they go to Mount Sinai. There the Old Covenant is established. That makes them a nation, but it's a works covenant, and they're only people of God in picture form. That's the idea. Okay, let's move on. Uh, verse 17. Now we're, back to the, now we're back to the olive tree, the branches. If some of the branches are broken off, and you, though a a wild olive shoot, Gentiles, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive tree. Remember, the people of God all come from Israel, historically. That is always the case. So there's always an indebtedness to Israel historically. That's true. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Historically, you come from Israel. You will say then, branches are broken off so that I can be grafted in. That's true. Israelites get broken off. They claim to be the people of God, but now with the coming of the Messiah, it's shown that they're not the people of God, so they're broken off. And Gentiles are being grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. Because, yeah, Jews aren't believers. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And he explains it. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. 
sternness to those who fell, the Israelites, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. This is perseverance. The fruit that Jesus, the evidence that Jesus died for you. You will keep loving him till you die. If you don't, it means he didn't die for you, and therefore you're, you're on your way to hell. Otherwise, you also will be cut off, just like the Jews, because unbelief, you get cut off. I know you claim to be in the tree, but you're going to be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, the Jews, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. That's true. If they believe the gospel, they'll be in the tree of the people of God. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, Gentiles, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Meaning, he says, it makes perfect sense for Jews to become believers. Because of their history, it makes perfect sense how God has, you know, how God has treated them, what he's given them. Here is unbelief, not nationalism. Correct. Some believe. I do not want you to be ignorant. Now we're back to verse 25, the real fighting verses. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Talking to the Gentiles. Israel has experienced a hardening in part. What part? All but a remnant. Until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, that will be the second coming. That's when the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Now, and in this way, now I'm reading from the NIV, the King James would say, then, no modern translation says that. Because it's, it's not good English. Not good English. Because then gives you the idea it's chronological. It's not chronological. It is explanation. It's an explanation, which is why the modern translation, no matter which way you go, they will say something like, in this way. Because it's, it's a phrase of explanation, not chronology. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. When the elect of the Jews come to faith in Christ, when the elect of the Gentiles, which is the bulk of the spiritual Israel, when they all come to faith in Christ, then you'll have the Israel of God. Absolutely true. Now, objection to this right off the bat is a basic one of interpreting hermeneutics. That when you have in the same verse or, or the next verse, you have the same word, Israel. You don't say it can be two different definitions right in the same verse or same next to it. And that's normally absolutely true. The problem is, is that this is a bookend to 9-6. Not all Israel is Israel. Two different definitions of Israel in the same verse. Not all physical Israel is spiritual Israel. And then he explains everything. Now we're back to the end. And he goes, in this way, all, because he pick it up in verse 25, Israel has experienced, that's physical Israel, has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel, spiritual Israel, will be saved. So it's not talking about a large number of Jews coming to faith at the end, talking about the elect of the Jews, elect of the Gentiles. This is how you get the real Israel of God, which replaces physically, physical Israel in the plan of God. And all the national promises to physical Israel are tied to the old covenant. 
If the old covenant comes to an end, then those promises come to an end. We will address that after lunch. We talk about the land promise. Okay. Not nine, six, nine, six. It's the book. That's why I purposely, I know it takes more time. The argument, you start at nine because it's the two ends of, you know, the two bookends are right there. Now, lest you think, which is a common, I admit this is a common view that a great number of Jews come to faith at the end. Okay. But if you go to verses 30 to 32, so we're still in the explanation portion. The time frame as to when this is going to happen is explained. Yes? Brother, will you help us with the citation? How is that citation? Verses 26 and 27. Oh, I'm not going to help you. Okay. Yes, I will. I'll come back. <laughs> Cheap shot. I can't, can't resist. Okay, verse 30. Just as you who were at one time disobedient, Israelites, to God, have now, re- oh no, excuse me, the Gentiles, I'm excusing the Gentiles have now received mercy as a result of their, the Jews' disobedience. So, notice the word now. So too, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy. This is the new covenant era. This is not the end. This is happening from Pentecost to the second coming. This is now. This is what we see now. Okay? Questions? Yes? Yeah. Uh, one last point on this topic of discussion. It seems as though we're actually talking about more of a Calvinistic point of view as opposed to an Ar- Arminian point of view. What it sounds like, we're talking about the problem here sounds like it's with choice as opposed to me being able to choose as Israel, I would choose God. And the whole point is that they would never choose God. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Putting the cards on the table. I'm a Calvinist with a big C. I mean, that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. I may have dumped covenant theology, but I, I am a big, t- you know, there is one license plate in Arizona that says Tulip, and it's mine. So. Could we just clarify the, the topic of this particular lesson that we are Yes. Yeah, so we, what we want to do, this is the second of four areas that we're covering. That is, we, we, the first hour we talked about the old covenant is replaced by the new covenant because only the new covenant, the cross, can produce a real people of God. Now we're talking about the people of God, that physical Israel produced by the old covenant, a works covenant, can only produce unbelieving people. They are replaced by a spiritual Israel most of which are Gentiles, a remnant are Jews. And then we're going to move after lunch. We're going to talk about the land promise in the Abrahamic covenant of the land of Canaan. And we're going to talk about that the land is going to be replaced in the new. It's going to be replaced. And finally, we're going to deal with the last sec, uh, session of the day that the Mosaic law and Ten Commandments are replaced by a different version of law called the law of Christ. So it's replacement, 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 replacement. But it's one unfolding plan. So we're the new Israel. Correct. We are the new Israel. Oh, here, I want to go back because the question was raised about uh, that problematic passage. Uh, the idea that as far, verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. That's Israel. 
26. Uh, okay. It, it quotes two passages of Scripture. Two passages. Jeremiah 31, which is in brief, as, as well as, well, there, there's a little debate, but it's uh, uh, the idea, Isaiah 59, 20. Both of those passages are regathering of Israel back into the land passages. Both of them are. It's the same thing that we saw at the end of Romans 9. Same thing we see in uh, Acts 15. It's the same thing we see in Acts 2. It's the same thing we see in Hebrews 8 and 10. Those are all the same. That He's quoting that the New Covenant era, when Israel is mostly Gentiles, little bit of Jews... This is the fulfillment of those prophecies regarding the regathering of Israel back into the land. It's never literal. And in every instance, there's nine of them, every instance, it's all the same. That's the point, at least as far as 26 and 27. 28, then it says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. That's Israel, physical Israel. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. That is, that small portion of Abraham's descendants that are the elect. They're loved. They are loved. For God's gifts in his call are irrevocable. That's absolutely true. Then it explains how this works now. It's working now, 30 to 32. And then when you get done, 33 to 36, it goes... <laughs> Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments is beyond, and his paths beyond tracing out. Meaning, who would have ever thought of this? I mean, this is a crazy plan. Who would ever have thought this is the way it's going to be? Especially if all you have is the Old Testament. Who would have ever thought this is how it's going to work itself out? This is how prophecy is going to be fulfilled. I wouldn't. So that's why one of the basic interpretive building blocks of New Covenant theology is we interpret the old through the lens of the new. Because that's what we're doing. Remember, because the lens of the new is the final word of the Holy Spirit as to what the old means for us who live this side of Pentecost. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.